0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We're very pleased to have Dr. Jeffrey Lee here with us, who is the Chair of the Department of Surgical Oncology at UT MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. Sir, welcome to BTK. Thank
1: you. Good to be here. So, could, could you give our listeners
0: a little bit of background about uh, where you grew up, where you're from, and uh, where you trained, and how it came to the point where you're the chair down there in Houston?
1: Sure. Um, so, I, I grew up mostly in New Jersey. Um, I was an undergrad at um, at Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Um, I spent 11 years uh, at Stanford uh, as a medical student and uh, surgical resident, uh, also did a research fellowship in cancer uh, immunology when I was there, um, and then I was lucky enough to, um, to get a spot in the uh, clinical fellowship in surgical oncology at MD Anderson and came down to do a two-year fellowship. In 1991 and in 1993, um, uh, Charlie Balch, uh, Dr. Balch, and and Rafe Pollack, um, who was transitioning to chair at that time, invited me to join the faculty. Um, It's been uh, a fantastic place to be ever since I've been there now for um, 25 25 years. About five years ago, I was asked to uh, take over as uh, chair of the Department of Surgical oncology. Rafe was uh, retiring from his position as as chair, um, and uh, was really fortunate to be able to do that. So, surgical oncology at uh, MD Anderson would be considered uh, gen- general surgery, and any other institution. It's um, it uh, at the time included uh, breast surgery. They're now a separate department. Orthopedics now a separate department as well as um, All aspects of GI surgical oncology, um, liver, pancreas, uh, colorectal, um, and uh, peritoneal surface malignancies, uh, also uh, melanoma, sarcoma, and uh, uh, endocrine, as well as pediatrics, are part of surgical. Well, thank you for that
2: introduction. And uh, this is uh, Dan Thon, who is a uh, graduate of the Anderson uh, program. And uh, Dr. Lee, you certainly are a master of uh, many disciplines within the field of surgical oncology. But one of the things that we'd like to talk uh, about uh, right now is one of your research uh, efforts uh, in melanoma. Do you, do you care to explain or expand a little bit about your research efforts?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I, I've been involved, uh, Vance, as you know, in um, interested in. Um, in the immune response to melanoma for, for a long, long time. And, uh, that over the, over the past couple of decades has, uh, transitioned, um, to include n- not just immune response, but also, uh, inflammatory response to melanoma and, and other cancers as well as melanoma genetics. So about, um, about eight years ago, I partnered with, um, uh, with Chris Amos, uh, a molecular epidemiologist, to uh, to begin to look at um, the very large number of um, of specimens, uh, blood specimens, particularly that we had collected over, from thousands of melanoma patients over over a couple of decades that I'd been on faculty. And we um, we first uh, did a, a very large um, melanoma genetics study, looked at inherited genetics of melanoma. Uh, identified some uh, novel genes that predispose uh, patients to developing um, melanoma, uh, including some immune function genes. And and then um, what we'd always wanted to do was to begin to look at um, the host factors that, that um, help to determine whether or not a patient who develops melanoma will go on to be cured of the disease after surgery or um, might um, might develop uh, recurrence and, and more serious melanoma. So we began to look at uh, markers of uh, tumor thickness and also uh, other circulating protein markers of immune response and inflammation. And we've been very focused on um, lately on um, uh, inflammatory markers because we think, um, based on some of our early work, that these are very powerful predictors of, of who will... Uh, who will go on to develop recurrence of a melanoma and have more serious melanoma. And we also think these are uh, really areas where um, uh, now that we have effective uh, targeted and immune therapies for patients with melanoma, we think anti-inflammatory treatments will be the next, uh, the next vanguard of, of important treatments. So we've been looking at, in particular, CRP and vitamin D, C-reactive protein, a generalized marker of inflammation important in uh, we know in um, in in uh, the outcome of patients who have cardiovascular disease at risk for heart attacks and strokes, but also cancer we think um, and vitamin D uh, low vitamin D levels are very common in melanoma patients kind of surprisingly as well as in the general population and um, and if you have a, either a high CRP or a low vitamin D uh, some of our Large recent studies suggest that you're more likely to have your melanoma come back, respond poorly to treatment, and even die of melanoma. So we think these are two areas where reducing CRP or raising vitamin D might be uh, really important therapies for patients, including patients who uh, seem to be cured after relatively straightforward surgery, but are at risk, as as we know, in a somewhat unpredictable way uh, based on things like stage uh, of disease in an unpredictable way, to having their melanomas come back.
2: So the vitamin D correlation seems uh, very contradictory. Um, you know, we, we live in an, a region of the country where uh, we don't get a lot of sun. So vitamin D has uh, been linked to adverse outcomes with breast cancer. Correct. Uh, when dealing with research specifically relating to what we think is a sun exposure, uh, how did you come to discover that correlation?
1: Yeah, we um you know we we weren't the first uh, to describe uh, um <clears throat> low vitamin D levels in a in a subgroup of patients with melanoma um uh, but we were the first uh to look at um coordinated evaluation of vitamin D and CRP and also we were the first to show that um melanoma-related death, not just overall deaths, uh, were higher in the patients with low vitamin D levels. We don't know yet why so many melanoma patients have low vitamin D levels. It does not appear, based on um, some of the work that we did, that melanoma patients are, um, are avoiding sun exposure a- so much after, uh, after they get diagnosed with melanoma. They're not um, they' it's it's not necessarily that they are um, uh you know being more cautious and and therefore their vitamin D levels fall for that reason we we found that the vitamin D levels actually were surprisingly stable um, uh, whether they were obtained shortly after um, a patient was diagnosed or or several years uh, after that um so it, it we did we don't think it's that these patients are avoiding uh, sun exposure so much, you know, sun exposure is important in controlling vitamin D levels, but it's not the only thing. Um, vitamin D is um, uh, is an acute phase reactant. It, it, that means that in a, in an inflammatory response, either acute or chronic, uh, vitamin D is actually used up um, and levels fall. So it's possible that the low vitamin D levels are not directly related to sun exposure so much, although there is a little bit of correlation there, but rather there are other mechanisms that are important, including chronic inflammation. Uh, and uh, that may mean that we have to give very large doses of vitamin D, we just don't know yet, uh, in order to get uh, the levels up in patients with, with either a serious melanoma or maybe other cancers like breast cancer, as as you mentioned.
2: So, looking forward uh, five years, ten years, uh, there were talks about moonshot and curing melanoma among the many mal- among the many malignancies. Uh, what do you foresee as uh, your research driving in terms of clinical applicability uh, and our ultimate hope and hope for a cure for melanoma?
1: Sure, I you know this is a, a tremendously exciting time to be involved in taking care of melanoma patients and and um, participating in, in research um, for patients with melanoma. We have, we've had over the past five to eight years a series of uh, really major advances, as, as you all know, in, in the care of melanoma patients, starting with targeted therapies, um, BRAF and MEK inhibitors uh, alone and then in combination, um, and, um, and then checkpoint inhibitors uh, against uh, CTLA-4 and PD one or PDL one, and um, these treatments are um, dramatically effective in a um, in a subset of patients with with seriously melano with, with serious melanoma. Um, there are more and more responses to treatments that look like cures, and so that really has changed, um, you know, t- has changed the battlefield for us. I think in in important ways and. Um, we really are looking forward to curing more and more patients, even with very serious, uh, serious melanoma. We're operating on more patients uh, with advanced melanoma, including stage 4 disease, uh, especially after they have uh, what are often partial responses to these targeted therapies and, and, and immunotherapies. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's tremendous to be able to offer um, helpful treatments, and in some cases, we think curative treatments. To more patients with melanoma i do think that the research that we're doing in um, in chronic inflammation in particular is going to open up a new front you know beyond uh, chemotherapy radiation therapy um, immunotherapy and targeted therapies i think treating chronic inflammation is 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 going to be an important part of how we manage patients with melanoma and other cancers uh, certainly within 10 years and that means, um, medications, that means measurements, um, to determine whether chronic inflammation is an important, uh, mechanism, uh, in an individual patient, uh, helping, um, or permitting their cancers to be more aggressive. And in that subset of patients, especially, um, uh, medications, agents, uh, vitamins, um, uh, to, uh, to abrogate or interrupt the um, the inflammatory response, maybe uh, diet and lifestyle uh, changes as as well. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that treatment to um, interfere with inflammation will be a cure in and of itself, but I think it will help uh, to cure more patients and and even prevent um, melanomas in in high risk uh, individuals. I think. And I think these, um, these mechanisms are probably important in, uh, in colon cancer, breast cancer, and uh, many common cancers as, as well.
0: Well, Dr. Lee, we do appreciate the time of taking us uh, to go through that melanoma research. It definitely offers a lot of insight into you know a very difficult disease to treat. Um, But I think we're going to move on to our, into our dissection of the day. And with you, Dr. Lee, I think we're going to discuss adrenal insidolomas. And I know by the time the patient gets to you, they've had most of the workup done. Uh, But for the students, residents, and staff that listen to this podcast, it'd be great to go through uh, what workup you expect to be done before they even get to you and how do you guide your treatment for there. So maybe we start with what type of workup do uh, do you have these patients do before they come see you?
1: Sure. So, you know, an adrenal incidentaloma, incidentaloma uh, implies that the imaging study that identified the adrenal tumor was uh, was done for another reason, not directly related to the adrenal tumor itself. Uh, the identification of the adrenal nodule uh, or tumor, therefore, was a surprise. And um, we're, we're, th- we're, therefore, starting with the assumption that uh, the patient doesn't have any obvious signs or symptoms related to that adrenal tumor. It's absolutely true that sometimes we find that the patient does, in fact, have um, often subtle signs or symptoms that uh, that are reflective of a hormonally active tumor, for example. But the phrase incidentaloma implies that it's it, that uh, the imaging study was not done because one suspected an adrenal tumor. So if we're starting from that assumption, uh, then um, we would we would first start with uh, physical exam and um, uh, uh, and uh, history, just like we would with any patient, um, and uh, we would look for evidence of um, on uh, on history uh, evidence of uh, hormonal hormonally active tumor, uh, things like high blood pressure. Um, Things like uh, a history of, um, uh, of uh, uh, hirsutism or, um, or extra body hair. Um, things like weight gain. Um, on physical exam, we would look, obviously, for evidence of Cushing syndrome of, uh, of excess cortisol production. But then if the patient is referred to us, we would review the laboratory data that had been obtained already. And we would um, uh, and and we would look for uh, evidence of a hormonally active tumor. And if there was missing laboratory data, we would want to fill that in. Uh, what we look for in particular is um, uh, on the routine blood work. First of all, we would look for any evidence of anemia uh, that could suggest that the patient has an underlying malignancy uh, or even a primary adrenal cancer, uncommon but. Um, uh, uh, for example, if a patient had a, uh, a significant anemia, we would um, we would be concerned that they might have an underlying cancer, for example, a colon cancer with metastasis. Um, if the patient had um, abnormalities in their biochemical evaluation, for example, a low potassium, uh, this would immediately alert us to the possibility of an aldosteronoma, particularly if the patient was also hypertensive. So we would always want a patient to have a blood count and electrolytes, um, renal function tests uh, to help us interpret the rest of, of the evaluation. Um, those are really the essential basic um, uh, um, uh, blood, the the essential basic blood work. Beyond that, we would look for uh, a series of specific uh, hormone tests, and you know, to some extent, as the um, referring doctor. You're going to be filling in examination um, uh, tests that have already been done. But in particular, we would look for uh, a morning cortisol level, an ACTH level, a renin, an angiotensin, uh, ideally an aldosterone, although you could argue if the patient's not hypertensive and their potassium's normal, it's not necessary. We like a DHEAS. Um, And then if those tests have been done, um, we would... um, uh, we would also prefer, even if the ACTH and cortisol are normal, that the patient have an overnight uh, low-dose dexamethasone suppression test. That is a one-milligram dexamethasone suppression test, a milligram of dexamethasone late at night, and um, a morning cortisol level. Those are those are the two essential tests. It can be helpful to get an ACTH um, with that blood draw as well to confirm that the patient actually took. The um, uh, uh, took the milligram of dexamethasone. Uh, if they did that, ACTH should be uh, very low uh, in the morning. And with those, you know, with those tests, it is usually possible to make at least a preliminary assessment as to whether um, you have a functioning adrenal tumor. Um, we also, of course, would add a plasma metanephrine uh, screening for uh, for pheochromocytoma. Uh, so with, with those um, relatively straightforward and relatively complete, I would say, blood tests, uh, you should be able to make an assessment as to whether you have a functioning or a non-functioning tumor. Um, sometimes the results will come back and will be equivocal, and additional testing will be necessary, but usually you can, um, you can determine based on, uh, b- based on those results.
3: Dr. Lee, can you just explain uh, what's the uh, purpose of the DHEAS and how does that change uh, what you would do? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so, a um, in a patient with a um, with subclinical Cushing's um, or with frank Cushing's, the DHEAS is usually suppressed. Um, so, a pattern of um, a uh, an elevated morning cortisol, a suppressed morning ACTH, or um, a lack of suppression to the one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test uh, together with um, a low normal or a frankly low DHEAS uh, can help when you're trying to determine whether a patient might have um, uh, a, a subtle evidence of subclinical Cushing's. What we're finding more and more is we look more carefully at patients with um, with small, small to medium-sized adrenal nodules, and we're really talking about adrenal nodules in the one, one to two, two and a half centimeter range that are typically picked up as incidentalomas, often in, um, you, you know, in middle-aged adults who have CAT scans done for other reasons, um, MRIs done for other reasons. Um, it is, it is more and more common that we will identify uh, evidence of. Subclinical uh, dysfunction of of the adrenal gland that is particularly um, uh, evidence of lack of diurnal variation of the cortisol level that leads to a mild degree of hypercortisolism mild Cushing syndrome and we think that that puts the patient at risk for a host of medical problems including uh, unintended weight gain uh, hypertension um, uh, either Poor glucose tolerance or frank diabetes, um, uh, um, calcium loss from bones, and 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 so forth—exactly the things that we see in Cushing syndrome—but uh, to a somewhat lesser degree. Yet, over a period of uh, many years, if not treated, can can mean um, uh, a detriment to that individual's health. So, the DHEA DHEAS helps to interpret. Um, for example, a uh, a dexamethasone suppression result that would be in the intermediate range. That is between two and five, um, where we suspect that there may be hypercortisolism, but um, we like to see additional evidence of that, particularly before recommending surgery to a patient with a relatively small adrenal tumor.
0: And now that we've ruled out that the tumor is uh a a fun- it's a non-functioning tumor and we've ruled out that it's a functioning tumor what imaging characteristics uh are make you more wary and uh more likely to operate
1: right so um you know certainly size um is still uh the single best um um predictor of uh of malignancy in, in an adrenal nodule um and uh we use size criteria to to uh, recommend to patients uh, whether or not um, whether or not they should have that adrenal nodule removed. Um, what that means is, the larger the tumor, the more likely it is to be cancer. Of course, um, most adrenal, most primary adrenal cancers are over six centimeters in size. Um, most adrenal tumors that are four centimeters or less are benign, and uh, those between four and six centimeters are in a gray zone. Uh, that being said, um, we also take the age of the patient and um, their uh, their health status into account in recommending surgery for an in- a non functioning incidentaloma. So we would be much more likely to follow uh, a three uh, centimeter even a four centimeter nodule in an elderly adult uh, who has competing comorbidities, um, and a young healthy patient with with even a two-centimeter nodule, uh, we will often recommend, since the choices are lifelong follow-up or removal. Um, even a two-centimeter nodule, will, will often recommend that they have that they have surgery. Beyond that, uh, we look at we look hard at the um, details of the imaging characteristics of the tumor. Although, um, honestly, most um, and it's important for the audience to um, to um, to be aware that. Uh, most incidental adrenal nodules will be in the small to medium size range and will have imaging characteristics of a benign tumor. That is, uh, they will have um, uh, low density, um, they will have rapid washout, and um, they will be uh, very regular and homogeneous. So uh, adrenal tumors that have uh, low density on, uh, on CAT scan, they have Uh, Their Hounsfeld units are, um, uh, are in general, 10 or less. Uh, Those are benign tumors because they uh, contain a a high degree of fat uh, density, um, and uh, fat within an adrenal nodule is a characteristic of a benign uh, adrenocortical adenoma. Um, Likewise, uh, they should be relatively homogeneous um, in appearance. They should not have uh, areas of uh, low and high density um, mixed within them they should not be necrotic they should not have evidence of of uh, liquid or liquefaction uh, and they should be regular in their uh, in their contours. Um, they should not uh, uh, appear to be attached to or invade other structures. We look for a nice fat plane around uh, all aspects of the adrenal of the adrenal tumor so uh, if the adrenal uh, tumor um, uh, shows any um, any worrisome features um, outside of the benign features that, that I've described, then that would be an adrenal nodule really of any size that we would consider for for early removal uh, It's th- those those imaging features are uncommon, and if you see an adrenal nodule that has um, Hounsfeld units that are a little over 10, that's, um, that's a little inhomogeneous, uh, but still regular, uh, those are usually atypical adenomas. We may remove them, uh, but, um, but it's important probably for, the, for, um, uh, for people to understand that um, in most cases, what you'd be removing is an atypical adenoma, we would say, rather than uh, an adrenal cancer.
3: So, which um, it seems like every time I I look or I I read about this, it seems like we're going after smaller and smaller uh, tumors. Um, So, are you saying for a young, you know, good operative candidate with a low density, you know, two centimeter uh, tumor, um, that you would offer that person a a resection?
1: Um, I I I I would. Um, I think that uh, you know, first of all. With the availability of um, of minimally invasive, particularly retroperitoneoscopic approaches uh, to these um, to these tumors, with uh, with the knowledge that uh, that these tumors do tend to grow, although very slowly over time, um, with the um, with the knowledge that these tumors, and although it's still poorly defined, what the frequency is of conversion to uh, to functioning tumors, that uh, they can convert to functioning tumors. I, I would have that discussion with, you know, if we're talking about a 35-year-old individual, um, uh, I would I would on the one hand talk to that individual about the fact that we're um, uh, that we're going to be following that that tumor for a while and. Uh, Also, I would look at that individual a little more closely um, for evidence of subclinical Cushing's. In other words, if I'm going to leave that that adrenal nodule in, I'd like to see um, a post-dex cortisol level that's less than 2, and I might even do some salivary cortisol levels, um, to, uh, and I'd look at the DHEAS hard. In other words, I would look for evidence. Because uh, I don't want to miss uh, subclinical cushions in a patient like that. Um, doesn't mean I wouldn't follow the patient if the patient was inclined uh, to, to be followed rather than have surgery immediately. I think that's completely reasonable. But I also wouldn't argue with removing a two centimeter adrenal tumor in a, in a young, healthy person.
3: So let's say that uh, if the person, you know, maybe opts for surveillance, what rate of how often do you do you image them and what rate of growth um, gets yeah. you concerned?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and it's a question, of course, about which there is incomplete uh, data. Uh, there are um, uh, a couple of uh, somewhat different uh, recommendations um, from um, from the NIH, from, uh, from the Endocrine Society and so forth that uh, that that have put together uh, recommendations, I think um, if an individual has uh a one centimeter nodule um, and they're um, uh and they're an older adult and you have done your the screening evaluation that I laid out and um, uh and they they have uh, some comorbidities, I think a single follow up imaging study. Uh, and that imaging study, I, ideally, um, although it could be a CAT scan in, a, in that patient, ideally would be one that didn't involve uh, radiation exposure, so therefore an MRI um, a year from the first evaluation, and then if there's no change, I would stop. Uh, so that's that's the type of patient in whom I think um, a very limited follow-up evaluation is completely appropriate. That, nodule on the order of one, one and a half centimeters is um, uh, on the one hand, almost uh, almost certainly not a health risk to the patient, and on the other hand, almost certainly not going to grow to a size if they're 70, let's say, that um, it would be a candidate for removal over the rest of their life expectancy. Um, on the other hand, an individual who's young, um, a 35-year-old woman, for example, with a two-centimeter nodule, who we've decided to follow—that's um, an individual I would get imaging in six months, um, then in a year, um, and then if it was stable, probably two years after that, um, to uh, in an attempt to document stability. And again, I like to move from CAT scan to um, to MR. Uh, with the with the second imaging study, because uh, of the desire to reduce uh, the individual's exposure to radiation, and um, because the primary uh, factor at that point um, in that individual is growth. Uh, in other words, if that tumor gets bigger, it um, it should then come out. Um, you're not necessarily looking for subtle changes in the appearance, but rather and you're looking at size and uh, MR should be more than sufficient to do that. Um, In a patient, in a young patient also, at the time that I did the follow-up imaging studies, um, either at six months or a year, probably at a year, I would repeat the hormone evaluation um, uh, to look for any evidence that this was um, becoming a hormonally productive tumor. I wouldn't do everything but I would, do, um, I would do a morning cortisol ACTH um, and a DHEAS, and then I would repeat the dex suppression test if, if I had any concern that the patient might have subclinical cushions.
3: Is there, what's the role, if any, for uh, selective venous sampling? Is this, is this for any of the functional tumors? Is this just something that you yeah. read about in textbooks, or does this actually happen?
1: No, I, I think it can be a very, helpful, uh, a very helpful test, particularly for patients with hyperaldosteronism. Um, uh, it, can be, it can be really helpful. We, we've explored the use of uh, selective venous sampling for uh, cortisol-producing tumors, but I would just say it, it, it hasn't been particularly helpful. But for aldosterone-producing tumors, it can be helpful. Uh, There is an ongoing debate in the literature as to whether um, all patients with hyperaldosteronism should undergo um, selective venous sampling or whether it should be limited to, uh, for example, to uh, patients over 50 um, or patients with uh, bilateral uh, adrenal nodules on imaging, since those are situations where the risk of the identified adrenal nodule on imaging being on the wrong side uh, is, is higher. Um, uh, we tend to use selective venous sampling relatively liberally for patients with hyperaldosteronism who we're planning to take to the operating room. And that's um, uh, partly based on the fact that we have a tremendous uh, interventional radiology team uh, who are very experienced. Um, it is a, an operator-dependent Procedure, in other words, it it is not easy um, to always to cannulate that, that short right adrenal vein um, accurately, and get um, uh, and and get reliable results, uh, particularly from that short fat right adrenal vein that empties directly into the vena cava, and therefore the interpretation. Um, if if the um, interventional radiologist is having trouble. Uh, cannulating that vein, it can be uh, really difficult to interpret the results that come back. Um, <clears throat> the test is also quite safe in in the hands of experienced interventional radiologists, like we have at MD Anderson, and 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 as are available at at, at many um, uh, medical centers around the country. Um, in, in other words, thrombosis of uh, an adrenal vein with um, with uh, ischemia of the resulting adrenal gland is very uncommon, and uh, bleeding is also uh, very uncommon as a complication. Hemorrhage of the adrenal as a result of the procedure. So we uh, we think it's it, it it is in our hands a safe and accurate procedure. And the second major reason for doing it and um, having a relatively liberal approach to doing selective venous sampling is. Um, in you know in this day and age, we really hate to take the wrong adrenal gland out, and uh, and and therefore, if there is uh, uh, any significant risk nodularity to the opposite adrenal gland, even if it's subtle, um, a relatively modestly sized adrenal nodule on one side, um, you know, um, uh, a centimeter or less in size, um, evidence of hyper. Possible hyperplasia with a lumpy, bumpy appearance to the adrenal glands, uh, and uh, certainly an older adult. Um, th- those are situations, even in the face of uh, well-documented hyperaldosteronism, we would, um, w- we would really prefer to have selective venous sampling before we take out uh, the adrenal gland.
2: Sir, thank you for that very comprehensive uh, review. And for the next portion of our podcast, we move on to what's called the tips and tricks where we ask you, the master, uh, how to perform an adrenalectomy. And you mentioned the term retroperitoneoscopic adrenalectomy. Uh, Before we get there, I'd like to ask you, uh, how do you get to uh, an adrenal gland? Uh, How do you decide whether you're going to do them open or minimally invasive? And what is your approach to getting to the right and left adrenal gland, both anteriorly and posteriorly?
1: Sure. Um, so, <clears throat> um, historically, you know, there, uh, obviously there are um, a number of different uh, surgical approaches to the uh, to the adrenal gland. Um, open approaches were were described first, and. Um, include uh, open anterior approaches, a standard approach that uh, all of us are um, familiar and comfortable with, uh, a relatively large uh, um, anterior incision typically, um, moving the organs, uh, the anterior organs out of the way on the left or the right, on the left side the, uh, uh, the spleen and, uh, and, and pancreas, the uh, splenic flexure of the colon, the stomach, uh, on the right side, uh, moving the liver out of the way to get back to the adrenal gland, the kidney, and the vena cava. Um, uh, urologists in particular um, have used an open flank approach uh, for decades, um, uh, that, um, uh, an approach that I, that I have very rarely used uh, for patients with adrenal tumors in, in my practice, even over 25, 25 years. When I started on faculty at Anderson, we were still doing open posterior adrenalectomies, uh, removing the bottom rib, uh, going through um, an incision in the back uh, to get up to the adrenal gland. We did that for patients with, uh, with metastatic cancer uh, and in patients with advanced breast cancer, believe it or not, uh, as a therapeutic maneuver in, uh, in some of some of those patients as well. Um, but of course, um, more recently, uh, we have tended to approach many patients, especially those with presumed benign tumors of the adrenal of the adrenal gland, uh, both of the adrenal cortex and pheochromocytomas, patients with uh, small to medium sized tumors of the adrenal gland, patients with um, both functioning and non functioning tumors of the adrenal gland, patients, um, even patients with selected patients with small to medium sized metastatic disease involving the adrenal gland via minimally invasive approaches. The first approach that was described, still a very good approach, is uh, an uh, anterior transperitoneal approach. Um, patients are often put in a lateral or semi-lateral position, uh, often placed in, um, uh, in a reverse Trendelenburg position, uh, typically use three or four ports in a subcostal location um, and use uh, typically you know this the standard relatively low insufflation pressures. Um, that the advantages of, of that of that approach of course is that it is minimally minimally invasive and it is an anatomic approach that all of us um, who trained in the era certainly of open uh, in um, uh, surgery uh, are very comfortable with. Moving the abdominal organs out of the way and to get back to the adrenal gland uh, in the retroperitoneum, it's a really good approach. It's one that I still use for uh, for some for some patients. And then um, there's the uh, the retroperitoneoscopic approach that I'll talk about uh, in a little more detail in um, in just uh, just a few minutes. In terms of selecting patients for uh, open versus minimally invasive adrenalectomy, um, it really depends on um, on the goals of the operation. Um, in, in general, of course, we're trying to remove the tumor completely, um, and um, we're trying to do that in a way that uh, minimizes the downsides to the patients, uh, the risk of the operation, but also uh, the expected morbidity and the uh, the rapidity of recovery. Um, we um, we do prefer um, still open adrenalectomy if we think that we're dealing with a primary adrenal cancer, that is an adrenocortical uh, cancer. And um, we've written about this uh, relatively extensively. Uh, it has been a controversial um, issue in the literature. Um, but we, um, we continue to believe um, since most patients with adrenocortical cancers present with very large tumors, um, as I mentioned, over 6 centimeters, typically 7, eight, nine, 12, 15-centimeter tumors, um, since these uh, adre- primary adrenocortical cancers typically invade adjacent organs and often require um, multi-organ resection. Um, on the left side, of course, uh, the spleen, the pancreas, uh, the kidney, um, <clears throat> sometimes the stomach, um, on uh, sometimes the colon on the right side, uh, the, the uh, liver, uh, the kidney, uh, the vena cava. Um, and uh, for that reason, uh, usually an open adrenalectomy is really the only appropriate approach for, uh, for these patients. An additional reason for preferring an open approach for patients with primary adrenal cancer is the nature of the cancers themselves, uh, as opposed to patients, for example, Most patients with colon cancer, um, other solid tumors, adrenocortical cancers are typically very soft tumors. They're friable. They're easily fractured. And once they're fractured, they implant. Um, It's the nature of the the underlying tumor biology. Um, If you uh, violate the capsule of an adrenal cancer, uh, which can be done open or as a minimally invasive procedure but seems... Um, based on um, uh, both a retrospect ret- retrospective analyses from a number of institutions, including ourselves and University of Michigan, um, but all, um, of patients who had surgery elsewhere and then were referred to us, um, but also based on an understanding of uh, current instrumentation for minimally invasive surgery and the types of approaches that we take to adrenal tumors where we really – um, at some point during the operation have to manipulate the tumor itself in order to get it out. Um, the tumors it's very common for the tumors to become fractured if we uh, if we try to try to remove a primary adrenal cancer um, uh, as a minimally invasive operation. so uh, for those reasons we prefer an open approach uh, for primary adrenal cancers. On the other hand, for you know tumors up to uh, uh, eight or nine centimeters even, if we um, if we believe that the tumor itself is likely to be firm, uh, does not invade adjacent structures, relatively well circumscribed, not necrotic, um, a minimally invasive approach uh, um, is, I think, ideal and uh, and indicated. And that includes uh, non-functioning and functioning um, uh, adrenocortical tumors, pheochromocytomas. Um, and uh, uh, metastasis selected patients with metastasis to the adrenal glands. With
2: regards to your operative technique for a for the retroperitoneoscopic approach,
1: sure. Um, so we we've been uh, been um, approaching patients, uh, selected patients with adrenal tumors via a retroperitoneoscopic approach at at MD Anderson for. Um, Probably about a decade now. Uh, we learned this technique from directly from Martin Walls in Germany. Um, Martin has probably the largest experience in the world. He he developed the technique. He didn't invent it, but he really developed it into a practical approach to the removal of patients with adrenal tumors. Uh, there was recently a small randomized trial, a European trial that compared um, an open anterior, or rather, I'm sorry, a uh, a transperitoneal laparoscopic approach to adrenalectomy, to a retroperitoneoscopic approach to adrenalectomy, and um, found uh, that the patients who underwent a retroperitoneoscopic approach had less pain and had a quicker recovery, even than than the anterior uh, laparoscopic approach. So, um, and and uh, our experience has been that it's very well tolerated uh, by the patients and. Has a, um, typically a very low morbidity. We can often discharge patients the same day if they're uh, if they're motivated. That seems to be uh, quite safe. So the standard technique um, is done with the patient in a prone jackknife position. Uh, we we prefer to use uh, an orthopedic or neurosurgical table, a Cloward table, uh, to do this procedure. Uh, this uh, lets the uh, abdomen. Hang anteriorly. Uh, it's padded and has a cutout uh, for the um, for the abdomen, um, and allows for uh, ideal positioning. A little arch of the back um, that opens up the space between the bottom of the rib cage and the top of the pelvis. Um, the standard um, approach uses three ports. Um, the middle port is placed about. Um, two centimeters beneath the tip of the 12th rib. And the um, the medial and lateral ports are then spaced out uh, to take advantage of uh, the maximum available uh, space. Uh, the the uh, medial port is placed uh, just lateral to the paraspinous muscle beneath the 12th rib um, and uh, a little cephalad typically to the middle port. Um, The lateral port is placed um, typically um, beneath the tip of the 11th rib, which comes down uh, lateral to the, extends a little lateral to that 12th rib, um, beneath the tip of the 11th rib, uh, lateral, and again, slightly cephalad to the middle port site. Um, We uh, make the incision for the middle port first, that incision has to be large enough to admit your index finger um, of your dominant hand because that you will use that finger um, to confirm entry into the retroperitoneal space and to guide the placement of the two other ports. So you make a skin incision, um, you go down to the muscular fascia, two centimeters beneath the tip of the 12th rib. Um, You then enter that fascia uh, the standard way to do that is with scissors, as w- as if you were essentially stabbing the patient uh, in the back. Um, uh, it's a very safe uh, space to get into. Uh, the kidney is there, but it's um, it's quite a bit uh, anterior uh, and protected by the perinephric fat. Uh, so you enter the retroperitoneal space uh, with scissors. In some patients, particularly older adults. You can often enter that retroperitoneal space completely bluntly um, with gentle pressure from your fingertip, and uh, that's the way that I do it now. At least I try to do it now, and if I can't, then I re- resort to the scissors. Enter the retroperitoneal space, you'll feel, um, you'll feel your finger pass through uh, the muscular fascia, and then you'll feel the perinephric uh, fat uh, fall away around your finger, and that's the sign that you're in that space. Um then we place uh the medial port uh second. Uh that's a um typically a twelve millimeter straight uh port. Um and uh as I mentioned it's placed um medial and slightly cephalad to the to the middle port. It's angled um cephalad towards the anticipated location of the adrenal gland, about thirty degrees of an angle, um and um just lateral to that uh, paraspinous muscle on the outside and, of course, the uh, psoas muscle on the inside. You can, um, as you place the port, uh, you should feel for the entry of the port by putting your, um, your index finger in through, the, um, through that middle port site uh, so that you can direct, help direct the, the medial port into, uh, into an ideal position. Port placement is absolutely critical for this operation. It's not nearly as forgiving as it is, for example, for an anterior laparoscopic approach. Um, and then the uh, lateral port is placed. Um, I have moved towards using uh, the air seal device uh, completely for this operation. It's such a beautiful setup uh, system. Uh, you can do the operation without it. We did it for a number of years without air seal. But the air seal really maintains that relatively small um Uh, anatomic working space um, with uh, constant insufflation in a way that really facilitates the operation. So I use uh, what's called a five, but is really an eight millimeter air seal through that in that lateral position. And again, it's uh, um, lateral encephalad to the middle port site uh, beneath the tip of the 11th rib and angled uh, posterior encephalad towards the um, anticipated location of the adrenal gland in it and the adrenal tumor. Um, once that port is in, and again, you feel for the position of the port with, using your index finger through the middle port site, you, um, you put your middle uh, port in, which is a balloon port, a 12 millimeter, 30 CC balloon port. Um, uh, put that port in, uh, use a little KY to make sure it slides in easily. Uh, insufflate the the, uh, balloon with air, put the port collar in place, and you're ready to go. Uh, I would say um, I would, um, uh, uh, at this point, mention um, a little clinical pearl. And uh, that is, um, you know, many of our patients, particularly those with Cushing's or subclinical Cushing's, um, but even those who don't have that condition, have obesity, including truncal obesity nowadays. And um, it's absolutely critical for a successful operation, ideally before you take the patient to the operation, that you measure the subcutaneous fat um, at the at the place where you're going to be putting that middle balloon port in. Um, I will tell you, even with um, the obesity instruments that we have at MD Anderson, the working distance um, between the bottom of the port collar and the top of the balloon for the longer balloon port that we have available is 65 millimeters, uh, six and a half centimeters. So I always measure, um, and this is, you know, this this was a mistake that I made early on. I always measure the distance on the CAT scan or the MRI between the skin and the um, retroperitoneal space beneath the tip of the 12th rib on the cross sectional imaging and make sure that it's no more than 65 millimeters. Um, If it is, then you're better off going anterior. You know, that operation won't be easy however you do it, but an anterior laparoscopic approach in that patient, if they carry their weight on their hips, as it were, um, is better off done anterior than posterior. Um, Most patients, though, even if they're a little uh, overweight, can uh, even, frankly, obese can have this, the operation done retroperitoneoscopically. So once the ports are in, um, we start insufflation with the air seal device um, up to about 16 millimeters, um, and we make certain that we're in the correct space. I like to do this with, uh, with a 10-millimeter, 30-degree uh, angle camera through the middle port. Occasionally, it'll be helpful to go to a five millimeter camera through the lateral port or to move that camera uh, to the medial port. Uh, But I prefer to um, use the camera through the middle port and operate through each of the two, uh, each of the uh, the medial and lateral ports. We start out um, with the camera in the middle port and with um, KITNERS through each of the medial and lateral ports. And we use blunt dissection to define anatomic landmarks and um, enlarge the retroperitoneal space. Uh, we look first um, for the posterior um, aspect of the, um, of the kidney, and second for the, um, for the psoas muscle. Um, once we've identified those anatomic landmarks, that confirms to us that we're in the retroperitoneal space, and that we haven't, for example, put the lateral port into lateral and entered the peritoneal cavity, or put um, the lateral port too high and entered the chest cavity. Um, Those things can happen, they're uncommon, they can happen. If they do happen, um, one doesn't necessarily have to stop the operation. Uh, Often one can reposition the ports, uh, deal with the pneumothorax, um, and just, uh, or with the um, degree of pneumoperitoneum, and proceed with the operation. Most of the time, of course, the ports are in exactly the right space, um, and the, um, the anatomic landmarks are clear, and one can proceed with the operation. The next step in the operation is critically important is to free the superior pole of the kidney um, from the periadrenal uh, fatty tissue, the adrenal gland, and the tumor. Um, this is absolutely essential. And just like if we're doing an anterior laparoscopic operation, you, um, you move things out of the way and you trust that the adrenal gland and the tumor will be in the correct place and it will come into view in due time. It's not necessary and it's actually counterproductive to immediately try to see the adrenal gland uh, or the tumor. So the next step in the operation is to free the superior pole of the adrenal gland Uh, from that perinephric fat. Um, Once that's done, and and I take a lot of time to to completely free that pole so that you can actually lift it posteriorly with your instruments, um, it's really helpful. The more you do early in the operation, the easier the last few steps in the operation are. Um, Then, um, typically, we'll dissect uh, Laterally and then medially, to free the adrenal gland and perinephric fat from their from their attachments. Um, we don't um, we don't typically look for the adrenal vein uh, until we've done these two steps. That is the medial lateral dissection. Um, but once we've uh, done the medial and lateral dissections, typically the adrenal vein, which of course is entering the left renal vein on the left side and entering directly the vena cava on the right side will come into view uh, during, um, uh, during that medial dissection um, in particular. Um, sometimes, particularly on the right side, you won't see the adrenal vein until the tumor is almost out. And that's because the um, adrenal vein on the right side enters the vena cava on the posteromedial aspect of the vena cava. And therefore, the adrenal tumor can be sitting, um, when you're looking from the back, the adrenal gland and the tumor can be sitting right on the adrenal vein. That's okay. You know, that the old, um, the old adage that you should, uh, with a pheo in particular, divide the adrenal vein early. Um, with modern anesthesia, really is not uh, a big, uh, a big concern. It's more important that when you divide the adrenal vein, you do it safely and that you're, um, you have good mobility on that adrenal vein so that you can get your clips on and, um, uh, and do a, a safe and complete uh, division uh, in one step. So we, uh, we mobilize the adrenal gland um, from all of its attachments, including the anterior attachments. Then next Um, we leave the superior attachments of the adrenal gland for last. And the reason for that is it minimizes the amount of actual manipulation of the adrenal gland and the tumor that you have to do. Um, It's tempting, and it looks easy uh, to divide those superior attachments early. Um, The first few of these you do, you'll be tempted to do that because they're right in your face and it looks like an easy way to make progress. It is an easy way to make progress, but it will come back to haunt you uh, because what it means is then from that point on, you've gotta be pushing and tugging on that uh, fragile uh, adrenal gland and tumor for the remainder of the operation. Uh, uh, You'll get more bleeding. uh, It'll tend to fracture and you'll regret it. So we leave those superior attachments for last. or for, the, um, for next to last if, uh, in the case of, uh, of an adrenal vein on the right side, that's right underneath your tumor. Um, and, uh, um, it, you know, once you've uh, divided the adrenal vein, um, we typically do that by double-clipping uh, the staying side, single-clipping the, the coming outside, and then either using energy or, uh, or scissors to divide the vein itself. Is not much left to the operation. Uh, we introduce, uh, we, 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 uh, typically move the camera to the medial port at that point, uh, put an endo bag in through the middle port, um, put the adrenal gland and tumor into the endo bag and uh, remove it through the middle port. Sometimes if the tumor is, uh, larger, you'll have to enlarge, of course, that middle port side by a centimeter or so in order to get the tumor out within, uh, within the endo bag. Um, I like Expirel. I use it um, uh, to uh, – it, it helps, especially if you're planning to discharge the patients the same day. Um, we don't uh, attempt to close, uh, to close the fascia at any of the port sites. Um, uh, uh, hernias are, um, are really uncommon unless you've had to enlarge – you're dealing with a particularly big tumor and have had to enlarge that middle port site a great deal. Um, we don't typically, um, close the fascia. Um, uh, we, we use a little local anesthesia on the way out. Um, and, uh, um, and, and that's really, really all there is uh, to it. It's almost always a straightforward operation, especially if the port positioning, uh, has been done, uh, correctly and, and carefully. Uh, we, we typically get, um, Uh, Get chest x-rays on these patients in the recovery room. Um, We'll get them in the operating room if we have a high degree of suspicion based on um, what anesthesia tells us or um, port placement that we might have a pneumothorax. An occasional patient will need a little chest tube. Sometimes patients will have a tiny pneumothorax that won't require uh, a tube, um, uh, even even if there is a little pneumo. Uh, that's, that, that would be, you know, the most common acute complication of this operation, probably one or 2% of patients, um, well, thank you, sir, for that extremely uh, thorough um, explanation of the procedure. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to post a video um, on mm-hmm. our podcast for our listeners
0: so they can follow along through the video uh, with the steps that you went through. And I think that'll be sure. extremely helpful to all of us. So we really appreciate sure. you taking us through that. Um, <clears throat> now we want to close out our podcast, and we start with the we close it out with the final five. And this is a uh, five questions. We ask all of our guests to get to know them a little bit better. Um, and the first question we wanted to ask you is, uh, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what type of music?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have been, um, pretty famous for listening to, um, to music in the operating room and, and the, um, you know, you know, the, th- the, the thing that I say is, 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 um, and this is sort of silly, but, um, uh, start with Bach and end with rock. Um, that means we, we start with cl- we start with classical music mm-hmm. and, and and we end with stuff that's uh, uh, you know uh, pretty upbeat. And uh, the reason I do that is um, is that uh, it, we're operating with trainees typically and you know this wasn't wasn't necessary for Vance, of course, he came to us uh, fully trained and didn't need any help. but I like to calm, <laughs> calm, calm everybody down. Um, in, in, especially in, in the early morning and, and then, um, when we're closing, I, I like to, uh, try to, um, uh, um, you know, t- uh, try to move things along so we can get to the next, to the next operation. <laughs>
0: How about question number two? Uh, is there, are there any hobbies, talents or interests outside the operating room?
1: Yeah, I'm, a, um, I'm a car nut. Uh, I've been a, been a car nut since, a, since I was a kid. Um, and, uh you know, the fact of the matter is I'll, I'll watch any, any race between two or more cars at any time, <laughs> um, on any, on any given, uh, Sunday. Uh, unfortunately I don't have as much, uh, as much time to do that as, as I'd like, but, but I, 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 uh, um, a particular fan of Formula One racing. I was really delighted that, um, uh, that they, uh, built a Formula One track up, uh, outside of Austin and, I've been to every uh, every Formula One uh, race uh, up in Austin since they uh, since they started having the series up there, and uh, um, usually drag a few people up uh, up with me. Um, my wife has been nice enough to go every year <laughs> as well.
3: All right. Well, keeping with that theme, uh, number three, do you what was your uh, first car?
1: Um my first car, of course, like a lot of us probably was my, my dad's car. Um, and, um, my, uh, you know, unfortunately my dad sold his uh, 57 Chevy Bel Air before, uh, right before I turned 16 and, and was able to get a, a learner's permit. I, I, I really looking back on it, think he probably did that on purpose. because um, <laughs> he, he knew it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good for me. But, um, he, uh, my, my dad had a, um, had a, a 72, um, Plymouth Duster, um, with, with a, uh, um, with a four speed on the floor that, um, was just such a, a uh, and, you know, was a, in the seventies. So it was an underpowered little car, but it was, uh, it was so much fun. I got so much, um, uh, really really enjoyed that car i had that car um, from uh, the middle of college uh, until i um, until my second year of medical school uh, drove it across country took a month um, driving that car across country um, got a hole in the gas tank in um, driving up pikes peak um, on those um, on those dirt roads up pikes peak and Fixed the uh, fixed a leaking gas tank in a parking lot in Las Vegas motel parking lot with uh, chewing gum, a brass screw, and a piece of rubber sheeting that I happen to have in my toolbox, and it lasted till I sold the car a year later. It was a great great car. I wish I still had.
0: I'm, I'm imagining yellow. Is that am I correct or not? Yellow car. What's that? I'm imagining a yellow car. Uh, no, I don't know why. it
1: was it was uh, um, it was a mix of colors, uh, oh, mostly okay. green. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, okay. Question number four. What would you be doing if you were not in medicine? I have an idea what you might answer for this, but
1: yeah, I probably you know I I, I would I would I would love to, to to drive race cars, but I'm not. Um, I am not nearly a good enough driver and I'm too tall. Um you know if you look at people like Jeff Gordon and 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 so forth they're 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 usually um uh um uh, pre- pretty pretty short and uh they're they're kind of uh gymnasts and and that's that's certainly not me. So I I don't know, I might be unemployed or working at Starbucks. <laughs> <clears throat>
2: And the final question: uh, If you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I was talking to my my mom of all people about this yesterday because I have a, um, I have a, a daughter who just graduated from college, and you know, like a lot of us. I mean, some of us. You guys probably knew that you wanted to be surgeons from. Um, from the time that 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 you were um, in grade school, but um, that you know that that uh, that wasn't true of, of me. And uh, even as an intern, I um, struggle with the fact of uh, the the idea of whether I was making the right decision. I I really wanted to be a complete doctor, and to me, um, after having gone through uh, medical school. Uh, surgery, particularly general surgery, uh, offered me the opportunity. I thought to um, to do that, to take care of patients in a pretty complete way, and to have a um, have a direct impact on um, on how the patients did and on on helping them to get better. And surgery, more than any other specialty, um, seemed to offer that promise. And I guess what I would tell myself is that. Um, I guess what I would um, tell myself is um, is is that that's um, I you know I think that's true, and that um, I would reassure myself that uh, that that I had really made the right decision. That um, it's been a fantastic um, specialty. Certainly, training in general surgery was fantastic training, and although there was hardly a specialty called uh, cancer surgery when you know, when I was casting around for, um, it's hard to imagine when I was casting around for something to do um, with the rest of my life after I finished residency. Um, There were relatively few programs. There was no ACGME certification, certainly for surgical oncology. And the the cardiac surgeons that I trained with, you know, arched their eyebrows and, and looked at me like I was a crazy person when I said that I was, uh, thinking about specializing in surgery for patients with cancer because, you know, in their mind, those patients couldn't be cured and, um, and, uh, the surgeries weren't particularly challenging compared to, um, or very well thought out compared to what they were doing in heart surgery with heart transplants, valve replacements, um, and, uh, pediatric cardiac, for example. but um, it really has turned out to be a tremendous specialty, as you know, as Vans can attest. I think that we um, uh, we we have such a um, such an ability to impact patients' lives in a positive way. The patients that we cure, and even um, often the patients that we don't, and um, and uh, things are changing so fast in so many so many positive ways. We have um, have and increasingly will have. Ways of accomplishing the same thing or achieving even better outcomes with less of a negative impact on on patients and integrating these treatments better with um, with all of the wonderful advances that are coming from our colleagues in other specialties in medical oncology and radiation and diagnostic imaging and so forth. So, so I, I really um, would 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 tell my younger self that. Um, that it, it's been a, it's been a great ride, and and I was always making the right decisions.
3: Well, Doctor Lee, uh, on behalf of the entire Behind the Knife team, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us today. That was very fascinating, very informative, and very thorough. Um, and it was it was also a pleasure to have uh, Doctor Vance on, one of your uh, former trainees here to to talk as well. Um, so, Doctor Lee, thanks again, and we hope to have you back on Behind the Knife.
1: You're welcome. Been wonderful. Thanks so much.
0: Until next time, dominate the day.